Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening. My name is Susie Gasper. I'm the Community Programs Coordinator here at the State Library. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to the Policy Pitch, a joint initiative of the Library and Grattan Institute. This evening's discussion is held on the homelands of the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, along with the elders of other communities who may be here today. I'd like to give a warm welcome to tonight's speakers, Catherine McGovern, Serena Lillywhite, Dr. Lindy Edwards, and Danielle Wood. Grattan Institute members and staff, ladies and gentlemen. There's a lot happening at the library this month as we mark the halfway point of our Vision 2020 redevelopment. From the 21st of September, there'll be a new way to enter the library through the historic Russell Street entrance, built in 1906 as the original Melbourne Museum entry. It will reopen after more than a decade, all, along with a new accessible entry on Latrobe Street. We're also opening two beautiful reading rooms, as well as a vibrant collaborative space that's home to a larger readings bookshop and a new cafe called Guild. Tonight's policy pitch event will look at the different ways special interest groups, including business, unions, and not-for-profits seek influence over policy. I'm sure everyone here is keen to hear our panel debate what, if anything, needs to change in the way we regulate access, influence, and money in politics. Leading tonight's discussion is Danielle Wood. Danielle is a program director at the Grattan Institute. Her research and advocacy efforts focus on tax and budget policy, intergenerational inequality and institutional reform. She's the national chair of the Women in Economics Network and she sits on the Central Council of the Economic Society of Australia. Joining Danielle are our panellists, Catherine, Serena and Lindy. Please make them all welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, look, I am very excited to be here tonight with three fantastic panellists, all of whom I think bring a real diversity of perspectives and experience on this particular issue of special interest influence. Um, I will just introduce them because they um, have incredibly impressive CVs. Um, to the far left is Dr Lindy Edwards. Um, she's a political scientist from the University of New South Wales. She's worked as an advisor at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, a press gallery journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald, and was head of policy for Natasha Stott Despoyer. Her books include the bestseller, How to Argue with an Economist, Reopening the Political Debate in Australia. And as I've said to Lindy, it um, somewhat upsets me as an economist that that is widely circulating. Um, she is also the author of the influential Dark Money Report on Political Donations in Australia. She's currently writing a book on lobbying and corporate power in Australian democracy that I am very much looking forward to. Welcome, Lindy. 
Um, to my immediate left is Serena Lillywhite. She's the Chief Executive Officer at Transparency International Australia. She has more than 17 years experience in corporate accountability and responsible business conduct. She's well known for her work on the social dimensions of international business, particularly governance, corruption, human rights, labour rights, resettlement and gender. Serena has advised governments and the OECD on policy issues associated with extractives, financial services, supply chains, taxation, transparency and corruption, and has previously worked at Oxfam and the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence. And in the middle, we have Catherine McGovern, who is the principal of Evaluate, an economics consultancy principally focused on social policy, including healthcare, ageing and education. Catherine has extensive experience in government relations and public affairs and has spent her career working with government as a consultant and policy advisor. She's worked in the health industry for more than 20 years, including at Medibank and GlaxoSmithKline. And before this, she was an advisor to the Howard government in the industry portfolio and earlier worked at an investment bank. Um, so can you please all join me um, in welcoming these fantastic panelists tonight? Um, so tonight, I'm really hoping that we have a, a really broad discussion about special interest influence. Um, so I first got interested in this topic um, through my work at Grattan, and we spend a lot of time thinking about analysing, advocating for policies that, that we believe are in the public interest. And I'm sure many of you are sort of followers of politics and, and policy, and you'll be very familiar with the process of good policy getting floated, and then it sort of seems to disappear into the ether. And there are many reasons for that, but I think one is when you have well-resourced, well-organised interests that stand to lose from a policy change, um, they can sometimes very effectively run interference on that change. Um, so the report that we've been working on for quite a few months now at Grattan, which is going to be coming out in a couple of weeks, is looking at the way in which special interests try and influence the policy debate. So looking at the different levers they use, political donations, lobbying, hiring um, well-connected former politicians and staffers, public campaigns, and we're really asking the question, what influence does that have over policymaking in Australia and have we got the current regulatory settings right? Um, and when we're talking about special interests, invested interests, I do want to be clear, we're not just talking about big business, although obviously that's um, an important part of the story. We're also talking about unions, we're talking about not-for-profits. It really sort of depends on the particular policy context. Um, so the format for this evening is we're going to have a discussion as a panel for the next uh, 50 minutes or so. Um, I'm going to put some charts up that various people on the panel have pulled together, um, just as a bit of a conversation starter, and so we've got some facts and figures to refer to. Um, and then I want to leave about 20 minutes for, for questions at the end. Um, this will be quite a broad-ranging discussion, so if there's anything you'd like to know more about, um, please have a question ready. Good, the clicker works. Success. Mm -hmm. Um, so I wanted to start this conversation by talking about trust and trust in government. Um, it's obviously a hot political topic at the moment, but it's one that I really see as inextricably linked to this question of special interest influence. And we did some work at Grattan on trust last year, and it doesn't matter what survey you look at, domestic, international, um, you can only reach the conclusion that we are currently at a low point by historical standards in terms of trust. Um, so this data is from the Australian Electoral Study, which is taken after each federal election and it surveys Australia's moods. Um, you'll see that trust bounces around a lot, but after the 2016 election, um, it was the highest point in history for people believing that people in government look after themselves, 
the lowest point for believing people in government can be trusted to do the right thing. Similarly, if we look at some data that's pulled together um, by Transparency International, the Global Corruption Barometer, um, I like this one because it simply asks the question, you know, do we trust federal government to do a good job doing what do we expect it to do? Um, and again, that the answer, yes, has been in decline over the past decade. Now, I think we can see a correlation between that decline in trust and concern about special interest influence in politics. And, and again, there's many different surveys you can refer to. But I want to put this one up, because both because it's recent data and I think it's pretty striking. This again is from the Global Corruption Barometer. Um, Serena, can you tell us a little bit about this data set and what you think this tells us about Australians' perceptions of special interest influence? Thank you. Well, um, I think, uh, you know, clearly, um, as you said, I mean, all the result, results show that trust and confidence in all levels of government are, are falling. Um, some of you may have heard of the Transparency International um, Corruption Perception Index. Um, this is, is a little bit different. We call it the Global Corruption Barometer because it actually asks questions about um, people in the communities direct experience um, of either witnessing corruption or suspecting corruption. So it's very much on a, a kind of a personal level. And I think what's pretty shocking in this when, when we saw this data coming through, firstly, it showed that um, straight out bribery, the, the stats on that were pretty low, you know, where people were reporting we've been bribed or we've witnessed a bribe, it was quite low, it was less than 2%. But then when we asked questions about, you know, whether they had witnessed or suspected that elected officials had used their, um, had used their, their position to benefit their families or themselves, the results were about 62% of the 2,000 odd respondents. And then as this slide shows, we can see that clearly, you know, 56% of all respondents are saying that they have personally witnessed or suspected um, that there have been decisions made to favour uh, businesses or influential individuals uh, in return for political donations and other forms of support. So clearly this sort of issue of, of um, undue influence is coming out. But what shocked us, I guess, was this one statistic that the figure actually jumps quite significantly to 67% of respondents said they'd witnessed, and these were people who'd actually worked in federal government. So um, that really resonated with us, that, that, that this is real, that this is perhaps beyond just perception, um, and that it, it really, I guess, fits very well with tonight's topic about the whole issue of, of undue influence and um, lobby groups and other uh, the sectors such as you mentioned, everything from business to unions to so on, really using their position to try and bring about um, either political decisions or policy uh, outcomes that are not necessarily in the national interest but are very much uh, going to benefit their own their own interests so it's 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 very recent data we only released it about two weeks ago um, so I think that really gives us a good current state of play about just how critical this issue of undue influence is and why it's a perfect topic for for tonight's discussion. Thank you. Um, Catherine, 
What do you make of this proposition that, that falling trust is sort of tied in with concern about special interest influence? And do you think there's perhaps some other factors at play? I think there's a lot of other factors at play. I'm, I'm not discounting the special interest piece um, entirely, but I think you know, the pre earlier slide about self-interest, and I think that concept of politicians being self-interested rather than interested in the community that they're serving is actually a really substantive one. Um, you, know, you think about the number of times we've seen you know, prime ministers change um, in the last you know, 10 years, um, the old you know, parliamentary super schemes, the Commonwealth cars, all of those sorts of things. And even a couple of weeks ago during the, the most recent leadership challenge, I don't know if anybody saw, but you know, I was quite horrified by a, a coalition MP who was quoted as saying, well, you know, we've got people out there who have based their schools and their mortgages on $200,000 a year. I mean, what are they going to do if they lose their jobs? Um, and I think you're getting this feeling that people, politicians are increasingly apart from our society rather than a part of our society. And I did my honours thesis on the Chifley government and I, I was looking back at it today as part of this. And, you know, the 27 men who served in the Chifley, you know, cabinets, you know, 75% of them worked in primary industry, in blue-collar working jobs, in commercial jobs. You know, in March 2017, 50% of the Turnbull cabinet had worked as party officials, um, staffers, advisors. 55% of the, the shadow um, cabinet had done likewise. 40% of them had worked in unions. That's actually not reflecting the community experience. Um, you're actually seeing a, an, the evolution of a political class that a lot of people feel that is apart from them living in the Canberra bubble. And you know, that, that's a very substantial issue, I think, about how we perceive the people who are governing us. Do you want to add anything, Lindy? I know you've got some thoughts on this as well. I've just a couple of thoughts. Sorry, just a couple of thoughts to add. One is that um, observation that often gets made that, in fact, the fact that they've become such an insular political class is why they're so reliant on polling. That notion that once upon a time they were of the communities they were representing, so they had a pretty good idea how people would respond. And now they're like, oh, what does an ordinary person think? I need, I need a focus group to tell me. Um, <laughs> So that is one point. But I think the other thing that comes into the mix is I think certainly if you look at the first slide, you can see that uh, the first slide where you can see that um, the big decline in current trust at the moment has been very much since 2007 and since we've had these uh, this leadership revolving door. And that um, – so I think one of the other things that – kicks into this lack of trust is that we've got this big ideological realignment happening in Australian politics at the moment and it's quite difficult for the major parties to work out how to put together political majorities and that when problems are hard to solve, people do have a bit of a tendency to think, well, if you guys can't get your act together, it must be because you're being malevolent rather than because it's hard. And I think we are actually going through a, pro through a transition in politics at the moment where there's a bunch of problems that our politicians actually can't work out how to solve. And people's response to, to seeing those problems not get solved um, is, to, is, I think, often to read, read ill intent into it. All right, well, let's move on and talk about money, which we're not supposed to do in polite company, but we'll make an exception tonight. Um, I think, you know, people are often concerned about political donations and money in politics because they're concerned that people with more resources will end up getting better access or have influence over policy. 
uh, and I do want to come to those issues. But certainly, one of the things that you find out pretty quickly when you start looking at political donations data, at least at the federal level, is that even though we have disclosure regimes and we're supposed to have transparency, there's a lot we don't know about the money in the system. Um, so I want to go to you, Lindy, because you've written about what you've called dark money in the system. Can you tell us a little bit about what we do and don't know about the money and, and what some of the flaws are in the disclosure system? Absolutely. Now, so when I started doing, I came across this material quite by accident. And when I, so I was starting a particular research project and I wanted to put the donations that I was looking into into a broader context. And that led me into the donations data. And I, I suspect, like lots of people in the room, would have assumed that as a mature, established democracy that we would have a functioning, competent political disclosure regime. And in fact, it turns out that we don't. Um, that my research found that actually, generally, only about sort of 10 to 15% of the party's incomes are being transparently disclosed as political donations. Um, that there's a couple of other, that there's then another chunk of money which is grey, if you like, in the sense that they've used a variety of accounting measures to, or a variety of sort of tricks of the trade to hide where the money's come from, either by using fundraising bodies where the fundraising body makes the donation but we don't know who gave to the fundraising body, so it effectively launders where the money came from, through to a whole sort of range of odd um, attributing things that look and smell an awful lot like donations to things like to these other categories of other receipts. Um, but then there's actually more than half of the major parties' incomes that we actually know nothing about. Um, that there's, we've got these very high disclosure thresholds. Um, the way the rules work in um, our disclosure, the disclosure regime, is that the parties only need to declare payments of over $13,000. Because there's a number of different branches, um, you can, you don't, they don't have to aggregate payments made to different parts of the organisation. They actually don't need to aggregate payments made on different days. Um, and so, so there's a, and so it's quite possible. You know, look, it's really possible that they're making that they're making, um, you know, forty million dollars worth of sausage sizzles. Um, it's possible this money is innocent, it's just that we actually don't know where it's going. Um, so, yeah, so I was, I was utterly shocked when I was like, well, we sit there and, because, you know, I have a number of colleagues who do, do a lot of work on the, on the donations data and then you go, you realise you're actually only looking at 15% of their income. You know, it's like we can talk a lot about that but gosh, the really big story is actually that we know so incredibly little and that it's really clear that the politicians are very accustomed to nobody really having any insight into what's going on. And I think that lack of transparency is clearly a risk factor for, for undue influence. Um, it makes it harder to, to draw a line between money and, and what influence someone might have. Um, a couple of other risk factors that we've picked up in our research First of all, we actually have quite a lot of private money in the Australian system by international standards. So our, our public funding is kind of middle of the pack, uh, but private by the standards of other Western democracies is quite high. 
And it's also quite concentrated. So if we just focus on the money we do know about, which is declared donations, which as Lindy said, is only a fraction, um, we can see that over 50% of, of the money is coming from about 5% of donors. And obviously the risk is when you have only a handful of donors accounting for, for most of your funding, is that you're more likely to be swayed by their particular concerns because the threat of them taking away money could have a sizable impact on, on party funding arrangements. Uh, I now want to move to, to talking about the, the evidence base around you know, whether donations lead to, to access and whether donations lead to influence. Um, and on the access point, this is something that we've done um, a lot of work on in our forthcoming report. Um, and what we've tried to do is link data on donations to whether people actually get meetings with, with ministers. That's not possible to do at a federal level because we have no visibility over who our federal ministers meet with. Uh, but we do in New South Wales and Queensland where, to the credit of those governments, they actually release ministerial diaries. Um, and what we found is that major donors have a pretty good strike rate at, at getting a meeting. Um, so at least that's sort of some evidence that there might be a link between money and access. The other way in which money and access are linked is something that Lindy referred to before, was these, these sort of fundraising dinners, and that's quite an explicit link. You, know, you, you pay $10,000, you come along, you get a seat at the table with the Prime Minister or with the Treasurer or with the Premier. Um, as you can see from the slide, they're quite an important source of, of funds for the parties. And we don't really know much about them because of the way they're accounted for, as Lindy mentioned, they go into this pool of other receipts and we can't really see who's actually paying to attend um, these particular fundraisers. The link, I think, between money and influence, though, is the really interesting one and it's always really hard to, to draw that straight line. Um, Lindy, I know this is something you've been looking at in your, your book and in your previous research. Can you tell us what you know or what you hypothesise is the link between money and influence? Um, it's, quite, it's, it's quite an interesting story because, of course, if you ask politicians, they will respond in the way that we all say, we're not influenced by advertising. They'll tell you they're not influenced by donations. Um, but the data does tell quite a different does tell quite a different story. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that donations are used quite differently by different players. Um, that sometimes you actually see really big, powerful companies, and you go and you know go up to them and go, oh, you know, you're a big, powerful company, and yet you haven't made any donations, or at least no visible donations. Why is that? And they kind of go, well. I've never had a problem with the Prime Minister returning McCall. Whereas, so sometimes you actually have, you know, you have companies putting in donations because they need to get someone to take their call and it's the only in, and they can only create their in by getting the donation. So it's quite interesting to watch um, some of these big tussles. You actually notice that the big corporates use a variety of, you know, quite, quite a variety of strategies. You sort of go, oh, there's a whole bunch of players in here and some of them are assuming that the money is really important. Some of them are thinking that they're going to get through without it. Um, but certainly it's the case that when we look at um, a range of kind of big policy events, you know, if we look at things like the mining tax, we look at things like pokies reform, we look at things like the regulation of the banks, and you do suddenly see big flows of money going into, um, going into the relevant parties' coffers. But one of the things that I actually found most shocking in looking at some of this data 
was that actually some of the money's not going to the party. Some of it's actually going to the minister. Um, and the minister's personal election campaigns, that, for example, the Financial Services Council, um, that, you know, the moment somebody becomes treasurer or minister for finance or shadow in either of those roles, that suddenly their personal re-election campaign um, starts, receiving, starts receiving donations. Um, and I had some students who I, I teach some defence students, and they were pretty horrified when they went and found defence contractors who were making payments to the defence minister re-election campaign and that quite shocked me I have to say. Catherine, interested in your perspective on this as someone who's sort of worked on both sides of the fence. You've been an advisor, you've been in government relations actually sort of lobbying government. Um, do you perceive there's an issue with money in the system? I think money in the system's always been there but I also think that money may actually buy you access, but it doesn't buy you an outcome, particularly not on a particularly stupid idea that you might have had that you decide to take to a minister. I think on Lindy's point about money going into certain groups and so forth, yes, it might have gone to the defence minister's campaign, but you don't know what it happens to after it's got there and which marginal seat it ends up and all of those sorts of things. Um, so I, I do think that that's a, a real point, is it might get you the meeting, but it doesn't necessarily buy you the outcome. Um, and, I, and that's a really important distinction in many instances. I'm also really interested in the slide a couple before about the um, various party political groups that that attract money. Um, and, and I'm just going to make it clear that I feel really old at this point because I remember when Progressive Business, the Labour-aligned group, was actually set up with the specific intention that the Labour Party had a perceptional problem with business, that business thought that Labour was anti-business in Victoria. So they actually deliberately set up this body with very low membership fees at the time to attract business into a dialogue, to prove that they were capable of being friendly with business. A lot of those 200 groups were actually set up with the intention of giving people in a, in a, in a um, politician's electorate the opportunity to not join a party, a, a political party, but to actually have the opportunity to have drinks with their local member once a year and actually have a bit of a conversation. Um, they've obviously, looking at the money involved, morphed into quite a different, a different place. But I think that's an evolution of the system, not necessarily a problem with the intent of the group as it was set up. I think you've also seen, as these have evolved and, and, and changed, you're also seeing evolutions in how corporations treat donations. I mean, I've never worked for an organisation that made a political donation. Um, I've worked in, in government affairs for you know, a fair amount of, of the time, you know, till a few years ago. Um, a lot of companies don't. A lot of boards, increasing number of boards are saying we don't make a political donation for the perception issues that, that, that Lindy's raised. So I think we're watching an evolution of how things started, where they then were perceived to be, and actually now the reality of a number of organisations saying, actually our shareholders don't accept this sort of behaviour and we don't accept it either. Serena, do you have, I imagine you have a different perspective? Well, I think, um, I mean, I think uh, I'm very interested in the point you made about, um, you know, donation, donations don't necessarily get you the outcome that you want. Um, but I think there are some, you know, some pretty 
pretty stunning examples of where that has happened. And 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 um, Lindy touched on the you know the mining super tax. Uh, I think that's a, that's really a classic example. And this this comes on top of what we know about the mining industry, what they've disclosed that the mining in industry has has disclosed they've paid 16.6 million dollars in donations to both political parties over the past 10 years. And you think, oh yeah, that's, that's a lot of money. But then when you look at the millions that went into what was actually referred to as the war chest to actually prevent the um, introduction of a, of a um, mining profit super tax, which would result in a greater share of, of mining royalties going to the broader public, then it was a, it was a phenomenal campaign where you actually see um, what Transparency International refers to as money and politics um, as really playing out and it's reported that the industry um, was running advertisements 33 times a day on average so that's you've got you know this this massive campaign and in the wake of the you know as we said the the delays over many, many years in, in actually getting up the Banking Royal Commission. We know that similarly, the financial institutions were donating heavily, were lobbying hard, and were actually using similar sort of language uh, to say, well, we're going to have a, you know, an MCA, you know, anti, um, you know, super profit tax type campaign. So it's almost become part of the the way some people think about what you have to do to link to link this, um, you know, not just making providing the money, but it goes absolutely hand in hand with this undue influence and um, and and really um, interference in in the business of government. Yeah, it's interesting. We um, we talk about the the mining tax example in the report, and I think we actually found um, ten examples since that since the campaign happened of different industries threatening a mining style tax campaign. So I think it's really become, um, you know, part of this, the standard playbook yeah. when, when policy's heading in a direction that you don't particularly like. Mm. Um, on the question of donations, um, we've certainly formed the view that the risks are such that there should be changes to the current system. Um, on transparency, um, picking up some of those things Lindy said, we're recommending um, bringing down the disclosure threshold, aggregating donations, so you can't split donations in the way Lindy talked about. Um, but the, the more fundamental thing we're talking about is trying to cap political expenditure in election periods, both for political parties and for third parties. And the idea of that is really to try and reduce the arms race between the parties of constantly having to seek out more money to try and outspend your opponent. Um, the rationale is also that you hopefully reduce the reliance on any individual donator. In, uh, individual donor. So if that cap is binding, um, all of a sudden each donation becomes replaceable. Um, Linda, you've spent time thinking about how the system needs to change as well. Do you agree with those recommendations or do you have different views about what should change? Yeah, look, I think they're, they're a really great starting point um, in that sense of saying, well, we really need to get to that point where it's, you know, we know where the other 85% of the money's coming from. Um, and, it, you know, it might turn out to be sausage sizzles and that'd be fabulous. Um, so, but, so I think that process of reducing the disclosure thresholds is really important. Um, 
The other thing that's really important is actually the timing of the disclosures. At the moment, um, we don't find out um, until actually sort of 18 months after the fact um, when, when some of the donations have been made. And so you know, the timing, the reducing the thresholds, the making sure that cha changing some of the ways that they can hide things as other receipts, all of those things would be really valuable. I'd really like to see it in this day and age. It seems to me that it should be entirely possible to have a donations regime which is linked to ministers having open diaries. So we can go, right, so-and-so gave this much. They got these meetings and they were lobbying on this legislation. And what we need it to be is a situation where a journalist who's writing the story can get that information in 10 or 15 minutes. At the moment, you'd need at least three weeks going through spreadsheets, and none of our journalists have got that capability at the moment. So if we really want the system to, if we want transparency to work, we need that information being made available in a way in which it's actually possible for journalists to, um, to do their jobs. Yeah, entirely agree, and I can confirm the three-week figure, and we have some fantastic Grattan <laughs> staff here that have actually spent those weeks doing that job. Um, why don't we move now to talk about lobbying. Um, so I think it sometimes comes with negative connotations, but, but certainly in my mind, lobbying is you know, part of a healthy democratic process. We want different groups um, you know, turning up to talk to their elective representatives about how policy is going to affect them. Um, we want to make sure policies don't have unintended consequences, so they need to be talking to people on the ground. Um, but of course, we then worry about access if it seems that certain groups are getting a lot more access than others. Um, so again, um, the work that we've done looking at diaries um, certainly suggests that, that certain groups get a lot more access than others and we, we show that certain industries definitely punch above their weight in terms of um, their access compared to their share of the economy or employment. Um, I'm not going to put up a chart because I'm holding some things back for the release of our report. Um, we, we know very little at the federal level, as I said before, because we don't have public diaries. The only piece of information we do have is um, what's called the lobbyist register. So that um, looks only at third party lobbyists, so essentially firms that are set up to be lobbying firms. It, it misses um, um, peak bodies like the Business Council, it misses unions, it misses um, government relations, in-house lobbying staff. So it is only a, a very kind of uh, restricted snapshot of what's going on with lobbying. But we see when we look at that, um, business is very heavily represented amongst the clients of the commercial lobbying firms, and particularly those in what we call high regulation industries. So industries or firms that are in sectors that have a, a lot to gain or lose based on government policy. So things like mining and resources or property are all in that high regulation category. Um, Catherine, again, interested in, in your experiences on both sides of the fence. Um, how important do you think lobbying is in terms of trying to get a policy put on the table or perhaps get it taken off the table? I think your point about it being a natural part of the process is really critical. Um, you can't win an argument if you don't get the opportunity to put it um, fundamentally. So yes, lobbying is important. It's important to stop 
bad things happening. It's important. I was involved once in a, you know, working in a very highly regulated um, industry in pharmaceuticals of the gene technology regulations, which quite by accident, I'm quite sure, had a small piece in the middle of it that referred to something called homologous recombination. It took me a week to work out what that was. It took me another three days to work out whether the company I worked for actually did this. And then it took about a week and a half to actually convince the government that this was a very bad idea because it had very serious um, consequences for the provision of vaccines in Australia um, because you do use it when making various vaccines. Um, but I think there's an issue here as well about relationships and lobbying. Um, you know, I went to work, my first work in, in government affairs was for a government affairs director who was from the UK. Um, she didn't have a network here. I then went to work in the UK in government relationship, in government relations, and at Medibank promoted one of my media team to work in government relations. So I, I think this whole piece of relationships or existing relationships is really grossly overvalued. You need to have a really good argument. You need to be able to pre present evidence for that that argument and you need to be able to put it well and be credible you know you've actually got to, to put those arguments you've got to work with people um, showing that you understand the pressures that they face yes that can be helpful but we also have to accept the fact that you know it might come as a surprise to some of the people involved but you know advisors and ministers and staffers do not know everything you know um, and Sometimes you do need to go and say, actually, your homologous recombination regulation is actually going to be a problem. In that 400-page document, that bit's wrong. Um, when I was an advisor, you know, you knew the top three issues for almost every industry sector in Australia. I didn't know how to solve them, and I certainly didn't know the detail that sat below them about how they might impact people's jobs, people's livelihoods, or the company's operations. So having people who do go in to discuss those things is important about actually um, dealing with an information gap as well as, as building relationships. Um, so Lindy, is lobbying just about filling the information gap or <laughs> do you think relationships matter? Look, I, I think it's a really interesting and difficult mix because I think, um, so my experience was actually working um, as an advisor in the Senate and um, the thing, you know, absolutely Catherine's point whereby you just absolutely this whole process is enormously more human than you might imagine in the sense that you roll up to work that week and it's like right we've got 600 pages of tax reform that we've got to vote on this week and the only person who's got to decide what we're doing here is me and I don't know anything about any of it and at that point it becomes you know you're incredibly reliant on the person, on who it is that comes into your office and tells you and says, well, look, 600 pages, there's really only three things you need to worry about. And, you know, and you kind of need to have that collection of people. But at the same time, it is still then that a very human process of, for example, you know, particular lobbyists really well know, you know, you just watch them being quite careful going, right, they're making sure that they're the last person to talk to the senator before they go into the chamber because, you know, the senator's only been across this idea for about 20 minutes, doesn't really know. They're going to come and come in with a personally motivating story um, just before they go into vote. And that's, you know, and that sort of human side of it is a, is a really important part of that story as well. Um, and so it does matter that, 
if you're, you know, one of the things that's challenging in the lobbying environment is that while is that there's such an imbalance in terms of the number of people there that, you know, this is one of the things that's changed very drastically in our politics um, that actually I was mentioning the other day that the guy who's considered to be Australia's first lobbyist is still walking around writing books, um, but there's now considered to be about 5,000 lobbyists in Canberra um, and most of them are working for big business lobbies and the thing is that if you're hearing a particular story and a particular view of the world a lot and there's an other voice that you only hear occasionally, we're human and that stuff affects you. So um, that imbalance, I mean, I think absolutely if you get all the stakeholders in and you get everybody's argument and that's all there is to it, then that's a really productive contribution to the process. But actually it, it often ends up quite a lot muddier than that. I want to talk about the revolving door because I do think relationships are important because I think it is human nature that we tend to be persuaded by people we know and people we like. Um, so what our research shows is that quite a lot of ministers go on to work in what we call special interest roles after political life. So this is basically tracking all ministers at the federal level from the 1990s. Um, so about a quarter of them go on to these types of special interest roles. Other groups and journalists have looked at advisors and they've shown um, particularly strong movement of, of, between advisors and lobbying roles in um, mining and resources in the defence sector where you get people going from the advisor role to the lobbying role and people going from the lobbying role to the advisor role. And I think that all creates a sort of certain cosiness between those sectors and government. Um, Serena, I know Transparency International's looked at it particularly in the mining sector and you've talked about the culture of mateship, which I, I think is a nice way of uh, framing it. Can you tell us a little bit about your research and what you found there? Sure. So uh, in 2017, um, we undertook some research in Australia that was looking at the corruption risks or the corruption vulnerabilities in the awarding of mining licences in Queensland and WA. And uh, it's on our website and it's a report that looks like that. That's the exact summary. But one of the really fundamental corruption vulnerabilities that we found that exists within the existing awarding or licensing processing uh, process in Australia is in fact this idea of well, certainly inadequate regulation of lobbyists, uh, as we've mentioned, but in particular, this idea of revolving doors. And so this is where we see a movement of staff from um, either elected officials uh, or individuals within the government, including ministers who've been responsible for actually issuing a mining licence, then leaving government and pretty much walking straight into, without the 18-month, uh, you know, cooling-off period that the law says, you know, under the Code of Conduct says should be there, but they will walk straight into a, a lobbying or, or mining industry um, position and they'll then be advising the mining company on how to go about getting a mining licence and what all the tricks of the trade are and then maybe several years later they'll be going back into government again. And so this revolving doors um, syndrome is particularly prevalent in the mining industry and alongside that we also saw that it went hand in hand with um, 
really inadequate due diligence into the integrity and character and track record of the company that was applying for the mining licence. So you have this sort of revolving doors which contributes to this culture of mateship because it does become a very cosy relationship. So then when potentially licences for a mining project are being awarded, the rigorous due diligence into the integrity and character and track record of the mining company that's applying for a licence may not be assessed or looked into closely enough. And that also includes, for example, perhaps not um, bothering to find out, well, who is the real beneficial owner of that company? And so that then opens up vulnerabilities. If you don't really know who the real owner of the company is, who sits behind whoever it is who's applying for the mining licence, then there's a real risk that uh, a mining licence might be awarded to uh, a company that's got a pretty dodgy track record or indeed um, could contribute to the illicit flow of uh, finances uh, through through corruption through money laundering and so on so a whole range of <coughs> excuse me a whole range of other integrity checks due diligence checks can go by the wayside if you've got this culture of mateship that can be um, uh, can be enabled through through a practice of revolving doors. So it's it's not just as simple, I don't think, as making sure the relationships are there and that knowledge is exchanged. That is important, but there are a whole range of other um, uh, considerations as well. And the last point I'd make on that is that, and it again goes hand in hand. We're seeing uh, 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 from a regulatory perspective uh, a sort of a shift slow shift towards additional discretionary powers for ministers. Of course, it's a hot topic, <laughs> discretionary powers for ministers at the moment. But um, a very tangible example I can give you, and in fact, I think there'll be a story tonight on it, uh, on the news in Queensland, is in fact, uh, it's reported that uh, industry groups within the uh, mining sector have been lobbying to bring about an amendment to the Right to Information Act so that it, there will be a blanket exclusion and the community cannot put in place an FOI application to find out uh, any information about how much money has been allocated by the mining company and how much money will be and how it will be managed for the um, environmental rehabilitation when a mine closes. So if this exemption gets up, which has all been pushed as an amendment, uh, reportedly by some very, very strong lobby groups, um, uh, that actually is the kind of complete counter operative, you know, counter counterweight to sort of pro-integrity. It's where you actually see um, some pretty strong lobbying to change regulations to limit access to information. Um, and linked to that is a, a recommendation that uh, the person responsible for managing that fund of that pool of funds will have broad discretionary powers to determine how they will be, that funding for environmental rehabilitation will be spent, how much mining companies should contribute to that pool, exactly how it will be um, uh, delivered. So, you know, that's that's pretty extraordinary when you put together a whole range of things such as, you know, lobbying, revolving doors, discretionary powers, cultures of mateship. It's, they all become part of the mix, which is why we often 
lump them together, you know, inadequate regulation, lack of transparency, lobbying, revolving doors, you know, poorly regulated political donations and so on, because it is a complex web. Yeah, that's a fantastic example, um, which might bring us nicely to the question of the integrity framework or our integrity institutions. Um, Transparency International has been sort of talking about the gap. We've been banging on about it for years. <laughs> in our institutions. Um, do we need a federal anti-corruption or integrity body? And, and if so, what should it look like? Yeah. Well, um, uh, and I should point out that um, this is work that Transparency International has done with um, our partner, Griffith University, and we've come up with a, num a number of options. But the short answer is yes, we do need a federal uh, anti-corruption agency. Um, the fact that we have anti-corruption agencies operating at state levels, uh, clearly there is a need and we would all be fairly naive to think that uh, that wasn't needed at a federal level. So as part of our global corru um, corruption barometer survey that we uh, undertook, um, it showed that there was you know, broad support in excess of 60% of respondents believed we do need a federal anti-corruption agency. Uh, and again, interestingly, uh, even those that had worked in federal government, uh, you know, more than 50% of them also thought we needed a federal um, anti-corruption agency agency. Um, so there are at the back of the room um, some executive summaries um, of this options paper uh, that has been put together by Griffith University and Transparency International. There's three options in there. One basically, option one says don't do much, sort of tinker at the edges a bit, um, maybe have some sort of anti-corruption coordination function. Um, and sorry, this is a very busy slide. The second um, option really talks about establishing um, an independent um, uh, anti-corruption commission. So if you like a kind of a, an ICAC for the federal model. Um, and of course, that is something that we would support. Um, but actually, when you drawing on the sort of discussion that we've had tonight about the complexity of these issues and that you know there are so many different parts to the integrity and anti-corruption puzzle um, <clears throat> we probably need more than just uh, establishing a federal ICAC we probably actually need a comprehensive custom-built bespoke overhaul of the Commonwealth integrity framework and anti-corruption framework that, that brings in elements of anti-corruption uh, in terms of both you know, investigating, um, uh, investigating claims of, of corruption, um, but also a prevention function or a pro-integrity function, as we call it there, um, looking at the departments that are working on political finance, donations, campaign regulation reform, and of course, you know, a strong whistleblower protection agency. So our view is just, uh, is that given what we've all been talking about, the various different views, positions and so on, um, and that box in the middle that you can't read sort of lists the existing agencies and really what's needed is an overhaul of all of it to put it together as a, a stronger, uh, I guess, yeah, comprehensive custom-built integrity framework which does include an independent 
broad-based uh, anti-corruption commission that has investigative powers, that has um, uh, the ability to hold public hearings when appropriate, um, as well as ensuring that all of these other agencies are, of course, adequately enforced. So um, we'd, if all we can get is option two, we'll, we'll take it. Um, but uh, I guess what we really would like to see is a more comprehensive overhaul that picks up on the sort of issues that are not just straight corruption, um, but really these grey areas that we've been talking about tonight uh, and that I know will be coming out in, in um, the Grattan paper. Well, as you said, you've been talking about these issues for a while. Um, what sort of political appetite do you think there is to go down the path of option two or three? Yeah, well, I mean... The fact is option three is the most expensive, so that's always a consideration. Um, I think it's fair to say that it, it, we are pretty confident that this will be an election issue. Um, um, my most recent meeting with the current Attorney-General um, indicated that, and his advisers, that they, the government will not go to the election without a position on this. And they, their hand has been forced because the opposition has come out uh, and said that within 12... If we are elected, within 12 months we will establish a, a, a federal anti-corruption agency. Now, they probably don't quite know what that involves, um, but nonetheless, it, it is becoming a political issue. Um, so there, I think there is a recognition that the parts of the current integrity framework are not up to scratch. They're just not up to speed. They don't meet the, um, the cross-jurisdictional challenges that we face. So I think there is a recognition that work needs to be done. Um, the other point, I think, is that um, it's, it's Within this sort of system, there is a lot of pushback um, and we're finding that some of the key departments that have been great supporters, such as the Attorney-General's department, because of the political instability and, and restructuring, the Attorney-General's department has had an enormous amount of its sort of <laughs> whole DNA pulled out of it and that's been shunted over to Home Affairs Department. So we've got all these challenges as well with the way the kind of the, the parliament is and, and the government is operating at the moment. Nonetheless, the really encouraging thing, and I was just saying before we stepped up on stage, I've my colleague Professor AJ Brown, one of the authors of this report, is in Parliament today, in government today, and this report has just been tabled in Parliament. So um, that's that's pretty exciting in terms of a way to try and focus people's attention on it. I think it is a very good teaser for your forth forthcoming uh, report, and indeed, you know, uh, the work that Libby and other um, Lin Lin Linda and others are doing. So I think there is some political appetite. Probably, and, and I think the statistics around falling trust and confidence in government are a really good, um, they're also really handy at the moment to get this on the agenda, but, you know, political will and there's political will and how that all plays out, we have to wait and see. Well, let's finish on that optimistic note then, yeah. perhaps. Um, I'm now going to open up for questions. We have a microphone, so if you can wait till the microphone comes to you and if I can ask that people... 
um, keep the questions short and make them questions, not comments. Um, yeah, we'll go to the back first and then we've got a couple in the front rows. Um, the legislation on political donations in Victoria, how do you rate it? What's its chance of being replicated in a federal sphere? And why are we so reluctant to use corruption in talking about these issues? Uh, so I'll pick up on the donations one first. Um, you know, I think it's great that the Victorian government has um, made a move on this front. We've seen other state governments move as well. Um, we certainly favour moving towards expenditure caps rather than donations caps for a range of reasons, um, administrative simplicity. Um, it's just a lot cleaner, to, I think, to go to an expenditure cap. But nonetheless, I think um, it's certainly better than what we had in place before the changes. Um, you know, I'm interested to hear others' thoughts on the, you know, why are we reluctant to say corruption? Um, in my mind, you know, when we're talking about corruption, it, it, it tends to be associated with that sort of the outright bribery that, that Serena was talking about, the, kind of the graft, the hard graft type issues. I think a lot of what we're talking about here is what we're calling undue influence. It's more of a, a grey area. It's, you know, trying to help your friends, your, your donors. I, I think it's not explicitly, you know, money in exchange for a particular policy outcome. So to me, it doesn't meet the definition of corruption. And that's why I think the language does matter because I want to differentiate those, those two concepts. I guess I'd just say, I, I think I agree with you, actually. There is a real reluctance to use the word corruption. Um, Transparency International broadly has a very broad defini definition of corruption, which is really the use of entrusted power for, for personal gain. Um, and it, given that slides up there on at the moment, I mean, I, one of the one of the discussions that I'm having with Professor A. J. Brown is, you know, there are some people who say, well, maybe we should have a federal, you know, integrity commission. Whereas for me, I think, you know, maybe we have to have both words in the in the title. But I think it is really important that we don't lose sight of that, and it is actually called a federal, you know, anti-corruption and integrity commission. And if we just use the word a federal integrity commission, it, it kind of sort of, it's just a little bit too soft for my liking. And I tend to agree with you. I actually think the word that many of us mean and think, and you know, yes, I think the undue influence piece is one thing, but actually the corruption that has been shown and proven to be happening across the board in places, actually you need to keep that word, but there is a real reluctance both for the word and the organisation, and, and I think it's foolish. I think in, an, in the environment that we're working with, we actually need to accept the fact that this is a reality and we need such a group. Um, I actually think it's really important that we maintain a sense of them as two different things um, because I think it's, you know, clearly we need, we want to be stomping on corruption, you know, calling out and stomping on corruption whenever you see it. But one of the things, um, so the thing that actually drove the, the research that I'm doing at the moment is, you know, I was actually teaching an undergraduate course and I thought, oh, a bunch of 18-year-olds talking about Australian political institutions. They all think it's terribly boring. I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll, to, to get them to, to sort of engage, I said, look, everybody pick an issue that you care about 
And as we go through the political institutions, I want you to track your issue. I want you to identify who all the stakeholders are, what positions they were arguing for, and track what happens to your issue as it goes through the political process to see um, to see whose interests prevail in the end. And I've got, you know, I teach military cadets, so you know they're a pretty conservative authority respecting bunch. And I thought, oh, this will be a bit of fun. There's bound to be a couple of shockers in there that'll, you know, rile them up a bit. Um, and then when they came back and my students' assessment was that of the 15 cases they looked at that involved major corporate power, that in 14 of those cases they considered corporate power prevailed. And I don't think that's all corruption. I think it's actually this much more subtle, this sort of the subtle process of, it, of influence, which means that so often our political decision makers, the thing that's coming through in my research is how often their default mode seems to be to defer to power. And you sit there and you notice, you know, you kind of have interesting events where they where they actually discover that, you know, something else becomes more pressing. And so, you know, the poor old business lobby becomes a victim of it and they don't win for a change because of, um, you know, so I'm saying poor old business lobby in a slightly facetious way there. But, um, but, you know, it will be because of something involved in a leadership spill or, you know, you'll have or you have a particular maverick individual who's driving very hard on something or there'll be something that bucks the trend, which means that you don't get this sort of what seems to be an almost reflexive um, deference to power. And that's, it's a different problem to corruption. But in terms of shaping our society, I'd actually suggest it's even more profound and more worrying. I'd agree. It's they're, they're, they're two very different things, um, and I guess the example of the revolving doors, you know, that's where there's a, you, you know, for example, a non-compliance with the Commonwealth Code of Conduct. Now, that's that's not corruption. It's just it's poor integrity and uh, and oversight. So we do need to distinguish between the two, but. Don't be afraid to call out corruption when that's what it is. I also think with the revolving door piece, and I was thinking of it when that the slide was on, I mean, A, some of those rules weren't actually in place for the period that, that the Grattan um, data is tracking, so those people are not breaking the rules as such by going off to those groups. But I think there's also another issue, and, and you talked about advisors, and, and from an advisor perspective, you, know, you often go in, you know, people often go into these jobs very young. Um, I was abnormal in the fact that I'd actually worked in a business environment and had an economics degree. Um, what are the advisors going to do afterwards when they've spent five years of their lives learning a system of government? Their career options are actually quite limited. And if you look at the, the case where 50% you know, of the, the, the Turnbull cabinet in March 2017 came from that background, where do we expect them to go next? Because actually their options are quite limited. Um, unfortunately, not everybody has, you know, Mr. Turnbull and Mr. Rudd's millions to fall back on. Um, and there aren't there are fewer people than there used to be who are like somebody, for example, Julia Banks, who can return to a legal career. Um, so I think that that's an issue of what choices did some of these people actually have as well. I would 
come in on the opposite view on that. Like, I actually think that is a huge problem with people starting in this game at 22 and 23 um, because they don't have, you know, not only do they not have, bring any other experience or other commitments to the table, one of the things I'm really struck by in my research is how often when something does change, when people do stand up to power, it's actually because there's something in their personal experience which means they actually really care on this one. And so they are prepared to go the extra mile. So having people who've only ever been in the game and who see it as a game and are not that committed to any particular issue um, is, I think, really problematic. Um, but then it does. I mean, you know, one of the things people aren't talking about, the impact of all of these leadership spills, is all these advisors have just lost their jobs. So they're all now going to go off and work for lobbyists. And a whole bunch of people who were working as lobbyists are about to be employed as advisors. And that... Um, that and that the fact that that's actually now the career path, that, you know, you started at uni, you kick your way through, um, and that it goes on for so long, because I think that's the other thing, as we look at things like parliamentary pensions, and, you know, I think the idea, the old system was set up on the idea that you might... You, people went into parliament, you know, in their late 40s or 50s, you'd had a life of perspective and experience, you came in and then you did it until you retired, that it wasn't this expectation actually that people were going on to their life after politics. Um, and so that absolutely this notion that there's a complete political policy bubble of people who are enculturated into a particular culture from very early um, and, you know, and this whole game of mates that goes with it. I actually think we really need to do something about that pathway. I really would love to... I'm trying to work out what on earth you can do which says nobody should get pre-selected for a seat unless they've actually done other things in the community other than work in a political party. <laughs> love to see how that works. Um, so we've got a lady down here and then a gentleman in the front row. Hi, my name's Sarah. My quick question is about where evidence fits in all this because sometimes my, my special interest is, is aged care and there's strong empirical evidence to support a particular policy, yet that policy always gets shouted down and voted down. And I just want to know where evidence... I'm a researcher myself. I want to know why, why is evidence not taken more seriously? Power. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, that's right, but I... How do you I, fight against this? I think, you know, and on aged care, it should be my business partner who sits up here because that's one of his special areas as well and I'll let you talk about that later. Um, but evidence is important. I think one of the problems, and I was saying this to the, the group earlier, um, is actually who's creating evidence and who's using evidence now. And I think that's become quite a significant issue. You know, we've lost a lot of people from the public service in the last, you know, 10 years. Um, with the result that the public service is either not creating evidence or is actually taking evidence very loosely in some instances would be my nicest way of, of, of putting it sometimes. Um, there's not sometimes that depth of knowledge that has always traditionally existed and therefore it is left to people like me to create evidence um, and to work on those evidences. And I, and I was saying to the group earlier that, you know, there was an instance a few years ago where I was involved with, it wasn't my document and I didn't create it, where I watched a department take a very good piece of, well, what I thought was a very good piece of economic modelling um, and actually take it back to the department and run the calculator over it. 
you know, not having a discussion about the assumptions behind it, what did the evidence mean, what was actually correct and appropriate, but actually did it add up? So you know, that's one of the problems you're having with evidence is who's analysing it when it's, create, when it's given to them. Um, yeah, I think that's another, certainly at the federal level, you know, the story that doesn't get told um, is just how, you know, just how many jobs have been lost out of the public service. Everybody goes, yay, 6,000 jobs got cut in Canberra. You know, we'd be having a, a rescue package for any other industry. But... Um, but the implication of that has is got has become really serious for policy capacity within the public service, um, and that you know we're increasingly in this odd, and again I think often very conflicted environment where the politician where we're increasingly going to consulting firms and it's the same handful of the big consulting firms to go and you know. You know, to go to go and come up with policy analysis on issues instead of having people with a real depth of background and expertise and in-house knowledge, um, and it's an enormous problem. And and it's a problem for the consultants as well. I mean, if you actually take your modelling in and you want to have that conversation with somebody and take it to pieces and have a proper conversation about what it might mean and which assumptions you may have got wrong and so forth, that's a, a discussion that's important for our community to be having. And if you can't, as a consultant, have that conversation, it's actually quite dispiriting. I think the um, institutions matter a lot here. Um, one example I have of a positive story, I think, was the formation of the Parliamentary Budget Office. Um, so in, in my area of tax policy, I think that's actually been a huge boost to evidence-based policy making because it's meant that the opposition or smaller parties can actually go and get a credible costing of their policy. So that's actually been a really positive thing for, so for example, we have Labor going to the election with a number of tax policies and they've really been able to do that because the PBO exists. So there's, uh, I think there's an interesting broader debate about whether you can replicate that success in some way, whether we need to have something similar to the PBO for other areas of policy, whether you have a department of the opposition its job is there just to, to be public service advising opposition on policy because often it's actually opposition parties because they don't have the staff, they don't have the public service that are particularly vulnerable to special interests during that period. So I think there are broader questions about can we improve the institutions to, to bring more evidence to bear on some of these questions. Um, gentleman at the front. Yes, uh, two, two questions. One is... Uh, how, do, how does our system compare with the countries we'd like to compare ourselves with generally? You know, democracies are a bit messy, uh, but how do we stand up, in your view, against uh, other countries that, as I said, peers? And the second question, part of it is, what's, what do you think is the biggest sort of threat to the integrity of the system, of the variety of things that we've seen here in terms of the revolving door, the undisclosed donations? What do you think are the really biggest threats to our system of those things that you've talked about? Uh, well, perhaps we can do that together. You can, you can make... Uh, I'll just make one. There's lots of things I think we could compare internationally. I, I might just pick up on um, 
uh, one aspect which is with regards to our foreign bribery legislation. So uh, in terms of how we compare, um, you would say the U that the UK and the US has the has the um, you know the standout uh, foreign bribery um, uh, legislation. One of the reasons, in fact, uh, why our legislation, or one of the flaws in our existing um, draft uh, legislation, is that as a result of very strong industry lobbying, um, we have remaining in our foreign bribery what is called the defence of a facilitation payment. So it's facilitation payment is kind of like a, a nice word for a small bribe, or could be possibly a big bribe. But um, most of the other, um, uh, you know, so for example, the UK foreign bribery and, and most foreign bribery um, acts and legislation around the world, they've got rid of this, you know, defence of a facilitation payment years ago. And it's just, you know, crazy that we still have it in Australia. And if you spoke to anybody in business, most, most of people in business, they would say, that's crazy. But there is one very strong political, um, or sorry, very influential lobby group that represents sort of mid-tier size companies. And they've basically pounded the corridors of parliament and been very successful at keeping it in. So this is an example of where we're not quite, you know, we haven't got as robust a foreign bribery law as, say, the UK, but actually we also see the link between lobbying to keep uh, a particular clause, if you like, within um, the Foreign Bribery Act. Mm. Um, I'd say in terms of our lobbying rules, we're, we're quite weak by international standards. There are various groups that kind of go around and rank um, how countries perform and we're sort of middle to bottom in those rankings. Um, as I said, we've got no visibility really of who our federal parliamentarians are meeting with. Um, we have a rule on revolving door for ministers. They're not supposed to, under the code of conduct, they're not supposed to go and work um, in a lobbying capacity in their portfolio area for 18 months. We've seen examples of that happening and there's been um, no enforcement of the code and there's really no penalties under the code. So we are weak in that regard. Um, and similarly, we're, we're quite weak on our donations disclosure regime. Um, so we're unusual in the fact that we don't cap either donations or expenditure. And we also have high thresholds for disclosure, which is, um, you know, why we have poor visibility of money. So we're not looking particularly good on any of those measures, I'm afraid to say. Yeah, on the um, what do you see as the biggest threats, um, for mine, the thing that really worries me about what's happening at the moment is actually the decline of countervailing power. That, um, you know, when I sort of first started doing my... When I first started my research career, I was you know, very interested in the power of ideas and blah, blah, blah. And the more I've gone along, the more you go, the more apparent, you know, the more apparent it is that actually raw power really is where the buck stops and that you really need countervailing power in the system. And I think that, um, you know, the data is very, very clear when we look at things like growing inequality on looking at things like the decline of the union movement, that no matter what you think of unions, the fact that, um, you know, the fact that you had a powerful force that could stand up to other competing forces in the society was really, really very significant in, in driving egalitarian outcomes. 
The other, so the decline of the union movement is actually quite a serious, you know, the fact that actually a lot of union movement money used to go into supporting a whole range of kind of public interest and social justice causes, and the fact that all of that money is drying up and we're kind of seeing the unions now in what's looking like a real kind of death throw last campaign to not get wiped out completely. Um, but that with that will come a really significant loss in countervailing power in our system. Another way in which we've lost quite a lot of countervailing power is that the whole process of contracting out that we've done over the last 30 years means that a lot of the sort of charitable and social justice sector that used to be able to campaign on issues now will deliver services and are subject to gag orders. So there's actually been a real, you know, that in terms of well-resourced, vibrant civil society where there's a real vulnerability in that space. And the fact that that's happened at the same time that we've seen an increasing sort of concentration in economic power um, within our economy and we've seen this enormous mobilisation and professionalisation of particularly business lobbying, that I think that loss of countervailing power is, um, is something we should be concerned about. And I, th I think it's a really great question, what's the one thing? And, you know, all of the transparency pieces are important, although I, I, I need to just put this on the record before I leave this evening. The publication of Minister's Diaries is one of those pieces that I, I look at with a degree of, of, of entertainment, to be frank. Um, you know, look at the look at the Queensland, you know, ministers publication of ministers' diary. You know, the purpose of the meeting was a meeting. Um, I don't mean to be rude, and obviously it's not the Grattan Institute's fault. But I actually found one of Danny's colleagues in there having a meeting with a minister, where the purpose of the meeting was a meeting. Well, well done. Um, um, but you know, and and oh, I met with invited guests to lunch. Um, that's not transparent. Um, that goes back to the piece that, that, that Lindy's talking about, about the, the, the donations and the intent of what the regulations and the legislation have been said are not being delivered upon. So I think there's a substantial problem there. It's not my biggest problem, but it's a substantial problem about the intent versus delivery in a whole variety of areas. Um, I think having worked in the system and with the system, I watch the human side of this with a really great degree of concern and care. Um, you know, the professionalisation of the business lobby, but the professionalisation of the, the political groups. You know, the fact that we're not getting, I mean, I, you know, I worked in an office where we had all been brought in because we'd worked in industry or in mining or had worked in an area that we then knew some of the, you know, the tricks of the trade or we knew the policy areas we worked on. You know, the health minister's office of the time was staffed by doctors and health professionals and, and, and so forth. They are actually areas of great depth in policy senses and when we take away the depth of that policy discussion, the depth of that policy analysis, we get worse policy and we get worse outcomes for the people who live in our communities um, and then we, build, then we start building again or building upon this lack of trust. So for me there's a whole of system problem that I don't know how to fix it but the piece about people both in the system but the impact of those people in the system on the people who live in our communities is is incredibly deep um, and incredibly profound and that's my probably my biggest problem. 
I would love to stay and talk about it this all night. I think it was a very profound note to, to finish on. Um, I'd like to thank the State Library for having us, um, to, to Megan French, our events person who does all the work behind the scenes, um, to Carmela and Kate um, from Grattan in the corner there that have done all the hard work on our current project. Um, so if you're interested in this, um, Grattan's report will be out in a couple of weeks, as I said. Um, look out for Lindy's book, uh, date to be announced, I believe. <laughs> um, and can everyone um, please join me in, in thanking my fantastic panel. <laughs>